Well, I, I think to look at the big picture, what's fascinating to me is it's been said by many people, and I certainly agree with it, that there are no two species on Earth that have such similar social behavior as wolves and humans. And I think the proof of that is how well dogs, the domesticated version of the wolf, fit into a human family. It, it, it's pretty much a perfect fit. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. There's perhaps no wild species with a more interesting and complex relationship with humans than wolves. We have revered wolves and infused them into our mythologies throughout ancient societies, yet we also mindlessly and senselessly kill them in the name of economic progress. In the United States, we have done nearly everything possible to all but exterminate this species. If it wasn't for determined, courageous conservation efforts, they would have long been hunted out of existence. Dating back to the mid-19th century, when we colonized the West and blanketed the Great Plains with grazing livestock, the war on wolves has been relentless. Now today, it's hitting an unprecedented moment that prompted a need to create this podcast series. The first time we here at Animalia are doing a four-part series. What Amarok Weiss, a renowned conservationist who you will hear from in this series, dubbed to me as Wolf Armageddon, two decades of progress, albeit a rocky one, on reintroduction efforts are being jeopardized because of a state-by-state killing spree ignited by the federal-level delisting as a protected species one of the final blows from an atrocious four years of the Trump administration and its own war on the environment. Let me outline the structure of this series, and then we'll roll into the first episode. In episode one, I'm going to share some of my favorite insights and learnings about wolf behavior and sociology in the wild. These are very misunderstood animals, even by many supporters. And I think it's helpful to first ground ourselves in deepening our knowledge about their day-to-day lives their nuclear family structure, and the many things that make them so special, admirable, and valuable. In episode two, we'll dig into the onset of the extermination efforts dating back to the mid-1800s, all the way up through the tail end of the 20th century when meaningful reintroduction efforts were finally activated. In episode three, we'll discuss those very reintroduction efforts, what worked, what didn't work, and what we learned from it. Finally, in episode four, we'll focus on what's happening right now the ideological and political war that wolves are caught in the middle of, why some states are ramping up protections, why others are legalizing any and all forms of killing in the name of blatant misinformation. For far too long, there's been a powerful and persistent culture of wolf hatred permeating throughout this nation and accentuated particularly by the livestock industry. This is not because ranchers and livestock owners and the politicians and businesses that support them are bad people. Far from it. They're holding on to a cultural mindset that has been taught and bestowed upon them dating back generations. And only through open dialogue and collaboration and science can we work to change that. You'll hear from several amazing people and experts throughout the four episodes who are kind enough to give me their time. These are people who are fighting to save this species in their own way. Finally, at every turn, I'm going to urge you to visit saveourwolves.org. That's saveourwolves.org. And please sign any of the multiple petitions being directed at state and federal policymakers. And if you can, to also please make a donation to support those efforts. Anybody can sign an online petition. And those digital signatures really do matter. 
These links will all be in the podcast notes. All right, well, enough of the preamble. Let's get into the first episode. Again, here I'm aiming to lay a foundation for a richer understanding of wolves in the U.S., what stood out to me as I learned about them from several fantastic folks. This will provide you with a great baseline for the three episodes that then follow. (laughs) One of my favorite tales growing up was the legend of Genghis Khan the Mongolian warrior who united several tribes in Northeast Asia in the early 13th century to form one of the largest empires in human history, challenging the Jin dynasty of China. Khan was fierce, courageous, and a brilliant war tactician, winning many battles with much less manpower. Legend has it that Khan was born from the union of a wolf and an elk. Wolves carry a very special role in Mongolian culture, as they do in many native cultures around the world. It is believed that Khan drew many of his battle tactics from observing wolves, who often have to risk their own lives in every hunt pursuing prey far bigger and stronger than they are, such as elk. Reverence for wolves extends far and wide across history. In Norse mythology, there are several sacred wolves, highlighted by the wolves Hades and Skull, who chase the moon and sun respectively, which causes them to set and rise accordingly. During the time of Ragnarok, the final battle at the end of the world in Norse mythology, or also the home of Thor and Loki. It is Hades and Skull who then swallow these heavenly bodies. In our own backyard, wolves play a powerful role across Native American culture. The Pawnee tribe believed the first ever death was a wolf killed by humans, and that this brought with it an end to the immortality of life and brought human death to the world. In Inuit mythology, the wolf spirit Amarok would devour human hunters reckless enough to be hunting out alone at night, serving as a reminder of protection in numbers. They also believe that wolves serve humans a great deal by keeping herds of caribou healthy via preying on the sick and the weak. Something, as we'll find out in this series, is 100% scientific fact and just one of many examples of why wolves are not threats to wild prey populations, but actually serve incredibly valuable roles in our ecosystem and help strengthen the gene pool. One of our guests on this podcast is, of course, also named Amarok, Amarok Weiss, an incredible woman who serves her namesake well. So why is it that wolves have played such a profound role throughout human cultures? And then why is it then that many modern cultures have turned against wolves in such an absolute and violent way? That is what we hope to explore across this mini-series, focusing, of course, on what's been happening here in the United States. Our connection to them seems to root in how similar our social and family structures are. Perhaps, as Rick McIntyre puts it, there is no species in the world more similar in this way to us as wolves. Well, I, I think to look at the big picture, what's fascinating to me is it's been said by many people, and I certainly agree with it, that there are no two species in Earth that have such similar social behavior as wolves and humans. And I think the proof of that is how well dogs, the domesticated version of the wolf, fit into a human family. It, it, it's pretty much a perfect fit. So for anyone like yourself that has a dog, they think of themselves as part of the family. And people that have never seen wolves in their life have never watched them when they come to Yellowstone. You're going to hear from Rick throughout this series. 
He's documented wolves for over 40 years and has been at Yellowstone National Park since the late 90s, just two years after the reintroduction in 1995, something we're going to cover a lot more in depth in episode three. He's also the author of The Rise of Wolf 8, The Reign of Wolf 21, and coming out this year, The Redemption of Wolf 302. You'll hear Rick and I reference his second book, The Reign of Wolf 21, in our discussion. Wolf 21 was a legendary alpha male, accompanied by an equally legendary alpha female, Wolf 42. In fact, Rick has spent so much time out in the wild observing wolves that I asked him if he could ever track it or could aggregate it in some way. Well, that's a good question. Just by coincidence, if I see wolves over the next five days, which I'm hopeful that I can do that, on that fifth day, which I think would be April 30th, that would be day 8,000 of my seeing wolves in Yellowstone. It would be a little bit harder to figure out like what the average amount of time per day, because the wolves oftentimes are traveling. You see them for a while, you lose them. Sometimes you have them back in sight. There have been days that from dawn to dusk, I've seen them. So on a summer day, that might be 16 hours. Other days, it might only be for a few minutes. So there's a pretty wide variation. But I can tell you that it's it's almost at uh, the point of 8,000 days of seeing wolves. I think it's safe to say we can classify Rick as a reliable source of reciting wolf behavior. So to give you a sense of a typical pack, they usually consist of pups, yearlings, and alphas. Think of pups as infants up through a 13 or 14-year-old in human years. At this age, they rely on their parents and the pack for survival. They are constantly learning and accumulating information, just as human children do. After a year or so, a pup becomes a yearling, which you can think of as sort of a human teenager up through a young adult. At this age, they start to come into their own, and they could be a bit rebellious, and they look for a mate to perhaps start their own pack and get out of the house, so to speak. Like humans at this age, yearlings have responsibilities ranging from hunting to pup sitting. They fight a bit with their parents, but they still respect and listen to them. Once a wolf reaches adulthood, it's really all about trying to become an alpha, which are pack leaders. Most wolves will spend their entire lifetime trying to reach alpha status, and many will die doing so, as we learned from John Vucevic. And so that implies that when you're born as a wolf, you have maybe a one in five or a one in 10 chance of growing up to be an alpha. The math doesn't work out perfectly that way, but pretty close. And, and that, that number is pretty startling to think of, to think and imagine what the lives of those animals are like. You're born and you have, you know, however you want to say this, you know, express the odds. You have just a one in five or one in ch- chance of growing up to be an alpha. And if you don't, you basically die trying. And to die trying works something like this. You're born into a pack. Your parents quite happily raise you if they're able to feed you for a year or so. And at some point, we'd all like to move on outside the pack. And you start trying and you, you know, you leave the pack for a day or two and scope out your neighboring areas and discover who your neighbors are and discover that generally they're probably not all that friendly to have you there. And then you go back home and your parents accept you to be home. And then maybe you stay at home for a month or two longer. And then you go out on a longer foray. You leave the pack and go to a little bit more distant place that might be one or two pack territories over. 
And you check out those places and they don't seem too hospitable. And then you come back home for a few more months. And, you know, on some of those trips, you might get killed. And some of those returns home, you might be less welcome than you were the first time. Maybe because, you know, times are getting tougher at home and it's not as easy to feed you. Or maybe you didn't help out as much as you should have in raising the young, raising your younger siblings. And, and, and so when a wolf fails, they fail basically for not having figured out how to get food. And they either starve to death or they, in the effort of trying to figure out things on their own, they get, they get killed when they're in someone else's territory. But then some of the wolves, again, not many of them, one in 10 or one in five, are successful in, in this challenging circumstance. They, they leave their natal territory and they find another pack in which they can become incorporated in and then kind of rise to the ranks, become the alpha, or they uh, find an, another mate with also without a territory and they find a, uh, they find a way to kind of get a territory and, and then they, and then they become successful in that regard. So, I mean, th- that's basically how it works. And, and, and those are the odds. They're not very good. It's really, I mean, it's really difficult life. John is a biologist, professor, and the primary investigator of the Isle Royale National Park in Northwest Michigan, a remarkable place John has been working with since the mid-90s. So Isle Royale National Park is an island in the northwest corner of Lake Superior. It's a national park, and it's also a wilderness area. It's also the location of the longest study of any predator-prey system in the world being the wolves and moose that live on that island. It's been going on now for more than uh, 60 years. In all of that time, there have been three primary investigators, and I'm the third primary investigator. I started working on the project in the mid-1990s, and I've been leading the project for uh, about the last 20 years, and so that's uh, been a big part of my life. The project is mostly focused on um, counting the number of wolves and moose that are alive on the island each year and then and, and then observing how those abundances fluctuate from year to year sometimes there's more wolves sometimes fewer wolves sometimes more moose and sometimes fewer moose and our and our main interest is to understand why you know to what extent are you know wolves determining how many moose there are and to what extent are moose determining how many wolves there are. So that's the, that's the centerpiece of the, of, of, of the work there on the, on the island. And it's more than just the nuclear family structure that makes wolves feel so familiar. It's the behavior and dynamics within that structure that really stick out. John helps us understand why these social dynamics involved into what they are today. So, so first off, there's, there's a lot of species that have complicated social structures. And in many cases, they probably evolved independently. But they may have evolved in some cases for similar reasons and in some cases for different reasons. For wolves, the reason that that kind of sociality evolved most likely has to do with two things. One is acquiring food maybe in general, and the other is acquiring food not only for you but for your immediate offspring who might not be as good at doing it on their own. So... A pack, some packs are also quite varied, like human families. And so some packs are parents and their immediate offspring. And some of these immediate offspring may be less than a year old, 
And some of these immediate offspring may be one or two or maybe three years old. And so the youngest of these are you know, really not very capable of making it quite on their own. And when we see wolves, that's not always obvious to us because a like, seven-month-old wolf isn't terribly small. A seven-month-old wolf is a pretty big animal, and they look smaller than a, than a two-year-old wolf, but, but they kind of look like adults in terms of basic size, unless you know exactly what you're looking for. So while it just looks like a pack, it's, it's, it, it is importantly, not exclusively, it is importantly parents helping their dependent children get food. And then for the older children, with the aid of a metaphor, for older children, now I think humans with like an 18 or 19 year old still living at home, well, I mean, they could get by on their own if their parents quite just kicked them out. I suppose they'd figure it out, but maybe not as well as otherwise. I mean, when you get these older offspring, these older offspring of the wolves that might be one or two or three years old, Basically, those are wolves that, you know, they're physically all grown up, but they still haven't figured out how to make it outside of the pack. Because making it outside of the pack either requires that they become incorporated into another pack or they find a mate and territory to make their own new pack. Well, those are just hard things to do. Think like a teenager getting a job or something like that. Well, of course, you can say they should get a job, but it's hard to do sometimes. And, and so what happens is, and I'm going to extend the metaphor, in this case, the metaphor is reasonably apt, is that there's a tension between the parents and the offspring. The parents might quite like that offspring to just get out on its own, but they're afraid maybe if they kick that animal out of the house, so to speak, they're not going to do very well. And so, but if they stay in the home, well, then they're more likely to do well and survive. And so parents kind of just figure that out. Sometimes they kick their kids out of the house and then, you know, tough luck, you're on your own. Sometimes they say, all right, you can stay. And wolves do the same. There are times when they eventually basically kick these offspring out of the house. One of the conditions when they do that is when it's harder to feed the younger offspring and or when the when the juvenile or the when the offspring is maybe taking advantage of the situation in the pack. Anyways, these various things can lead to wolves kicking their offspring out of the natal pack and various factors can cause them to keep to, to allow that wolf to stay. So basically getting getting food is 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 the reason to do it there end up being you know multiple layers of explanation in biology one of the layers of explanation and they can be applied to humans and to non-humans it's not the full explanation just a layer of the explanation is that our offspring whether we are talking about humans or wolves our offspring contain 50 percent of our genes so their success is not just their success it's half my success and, and so there can be a, a reason to be a little bit good to your children, maybe beyond what it may s- seem necessary, because their successes are a little bit yours. That's true for humans like it is for, for wolves. And so these all contribute to uh, that family organization. So, yeah. Sound familiar? Wolves are astonishing social creatures. Like any other social creature, with the existence of packs and subcultures also comes conflict. The leading cause of death for wolves in the natural world is, well, other wolves. Territory conflict often results in death. The system wolves use to define and establish territory within and across packs is unknown to science in exact terms, but it's clearly a complex system. While wolves can mark territory with their scent, the dynamics of how and where they choose to mark it, when a neighboring pack is seen as a serious or a non-serious threat, 
and why some packs take on survivors upon a victory and others show less mercy is a mystery, but one that hints to the depth and breadth of their social dynamics. Within a pack, the alpha female is usually the one in control. As we learned from Rick, it was the respect for females that served as a big factor for Wolf 21's ascension into guiding one of the largest packs ever documented. My theory is that when young males are growing up, when they're pups at the den site, the mother is a very decisive, very decisive in everything that's going on. So if you're a little male pup and you kind of wander off too far, she's going to get you and um, just grab you in her mouth, lift you up and shove you back in the den. If you're maybe a male pup playing roughly with another pup and you're kind of maybe causing that pup to, to squeal out in pain or something like that or to protest, boy, that mother is going to come up and she's going to grab you and stuff you back in the, in the den, basically just discipline you. So it's kind of like in, a, in many human families where you know, all the kids are afraid of doing anything to annoy the mother, but they know they can get away with a lot of stuff with, with dad. So I think if you grow up in that type of a situation, it, it, it sticks with you for life. And one of the other stories about 21, and I, I'll, I'll mention parenthetically that he was one of the biggest and strongest male wolves that we ever had. He was the undisputed heavyweight champion, never lost a fight with a rival male. But he just seemed to have an ironclad inhibition against doing anything to harm a female. So one mating season, he got interested in this little female and he was wagging his tail and let's just say making some advances to her. And for whatever reason, she wanted nothing to do with him. And when she got to a, a certain level of annoyance, she just started biting him. And he just stood there and took it. The only thing he did was to wag his tail a little bit faster. And so that was just another example that, you know, he was almost twice her size and twice her strength, but he had total respect for females and he totally accepted that rejection and just walked off once he fully understood that this wasn't going to work out. Wolf 21 and Wolf 42 are what one might call a power couple. Their relationship was an epic one, starting with Wolf 42's stand against her abusive and brutal older sister, Wolf 40 who was Wolf 21's alpha at the time. After years of attacks, both physical and psychological, Wolf 42 rose up against 40 and killed her. She moved into her spot as Wolf 21's mate, and the two never looked back. What ensued was a lifelong romance that would make Johnny Cash and Jude Carter jealous, culminating in Wolf 42's death at the very hands of a rival pack that Wolf 40 used to terrorize endlessly. To repeat that, Wolf 42 was killed generations later by the same pack that her older sister used to terrorize. So why was it that this pack took vengeance so many years later against a sibling of the one they hated? Is it possible that wolves can pass down contextual experiences generation to generation to tell stories in this way? I asked that of Rick and why there is likely a more digestible sociological explanation for this, such as younger wolves simply observing the tense and animostic attitudes of their elders around a certain pack, it does make one wonder if wolf culture carries with it its own form of storytelling generation to generation. So I'm, I'm curious if this type of kind of historical grudges and experiences can also be passed down 
to to younger wolves, to pups, to yearlings, to young adults, and then acted upon. And that if you know if that if that is possible, if those things, if those experiences can be taught amongst wolves, do you think it is also possible that you know there you know there's some historical narrative? Like amongst the the wolf species or community at large that obviously we can't verify or, or understand about the conflict with humans and the danger of humans and that there's a chance that that type of knowledge can be can be passed along generation to generation so long as there's not a you know a break a, a, a formal break i don't know if what i'm saying makes sense but do, do you think it's that you think that 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 is possible in theory yeah, you're you're bringing up some really profound questions that indicate you're really thoughtful on this subject. So for folks that haven't had a chance to read the book, let me give them a little bit of background. So one of the original packs brought down at the, in the first year of the reintroduction was known as the Crystal Creek Pack. They denned in Lamar Valley a little bit after the original Druid wolves were brought down in the second year of the reintroduction. The original Druid wolves included 40 and 42 when they were young adults. And we think that what I'm about to say was was engineered by 40 because it, it certainly fit her personality as we came to know her. Her family attacked the Crystal Creek wolves at their den site and they killed the alpha male. It appeared that they killed all of the pups the mother wolf number five survived as did a, a younger adult male. So only two survivors. They had to abandon their territory to the Druid wolves and uh, they moved south. They found a territory in a remote area. They thrived. They were eventually renamed Molly's Pack because they no longer lived in the Crystal Creek area. But it did appear that that incident during the, the early time that they were established in Yellowstone had a profound impact on them in the sense that a, a culture of what I will say of violence seemed to prevail in that family for many generations. Now, I've stressed that the younger adult wolves in a wolf family will learn from the older ones. So, you know, just like in a human context. So I think as the years went by, as the generations turned over, there was a through line where each generation of younger wolves saw the older wolves when they came back to what we knew was their ancestral grounds in Lamar Valley. They were a very aggressive to the descendants of the original Druid wolves who were innocent of that long ago incident, that violent incident. And so years later, unfortunately, there was a time where we don't know exactly what happened. It was the middle of the night. There was a, a battle. And we later found out that 42 didn't survive that. We have reason to believe that 21 was fighting the Molly's Wolves in a location that was apart from 42. Keep in mind that it was the middle of the night. So it was a very chaotic situation. The reason I'm mentioning that is that as I followed 21 in the days and the weeks and the months later, my take on explaining his behavior was that he did not actually know what had happened to 42. We knew that she had died, but he didn't. And as far as I could figure out, all that he knew from his perspective was that she was missing. 
So I went back over my field notes as I was researching my book day by day, and I saw that in a way he was conducting a search pattern. Their territory ran along the Lamar River, which, which runs roughly east to west. And so he would lead the family along the ridge on the north side of the valley, and then at a later time lead them on the ridge on the south side of the valley. So it was like he was searching for something. And when I went over those notes, I knew where she had died because we went out there to check on her situation. And he never quite made it to that exact location. He was within a few miles of it several times, but never quite to that location. So that's why his story is such an emotional one that in the weeks and the months after her death, as he was deteriorating, there was this question of what was his understanding in his mind of what had happened? Did he have hope that he would find her? And as the, the months went by, that hope began to decline in his mind. And then eventually he got to the point where he just didn't want to live anymore. I have to say that's just all conjecture in my mind. But yes, getting back to your original question, there, there was a grudge of the Molly's Wolves against the, the Druids. And unfortunately, that act of violence that 42's sister, 40, committed many, many years ago, ironically had this effect of years later coming back on the innocent sister. So Boy, some of these stories are, are like Shakespearean in, in dimension that if I didn't know these were true stories that I had witnessed personally, I, I, you know, I, even I might doubt them, but I saw all this stuff happen with my own eyes. After 42 died, Rick believes that Wolf 21 essentially lost the will to live. After considerable effort to find her, Wolf 21 ascended to a hilltop overlooking Lamar Valley, laid down, and passed on. Most of us in life would only be so lucky to have a love for another so strong that it quite literally takes our own life away when we lose them. I came across a, a word in the language in Okinawa, which is part of Japan. I can't pronounce it. It's unpronounceable to me. But I understand the definition would be the equivalent to our phrase, the reason you get up in the morning, like your motivation to keep on living. And for your listeners that haven't read the, the 21 book, I, can't, I don't want to really give away the, the emotional parts of the story. But when 21 lost his longtime mate, he just seemed to deteriorate really quickly. And his will to live seemed to be fading from him. I, I heard a phrase the other day that really startled me. And I, I forget the context if it was someone that was was really sick and, and dying or, or had you know some gigantic tragedy in, in their life. I, I forget the backstory, but um, the quote was the, the person was saying to a friend that, that he, he just didn't want to be alive anymore. I think he came out of this depression. He was eventually okay. But I, I've, I've thought about that phrase quite a bit. He just didn't want to be alive anymore. I share this story from Rick, not to overemphasize the emotional and social depth of wolves. For as John reminded me many times in our chats, we have no way of concretely knowing what's going on in the head and mind and heart and soul of another species. Heck, we can't even decipher it within our own species. But I share it rather to help listeners appreciate the life of wolves and to value and respect their right to life as living creatures. 
If anything, the intricate details of how and why wolves behave the way they do should give us a sense of wonder and motivate us to give them the same level of respect we want for ourselves. John summed this up when I asked him how he thinks about what's going on in the mind of a wolf he's observing. To take notes on what's happening, like objectively observable, it takes skill to do that. And you can do it well and you can do it poorly. And because I'm a scientist, I'm reasonably good at doing it. But to know what's happening between the ears of an animal, inside their heads, wow, that's a different story. And, 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 and so it leaves me with a, a, a great sense of wonder to not know for sure what's going on. And quite truthfully, I have the same relationship with other humans because it's not always easy to know what's going on between the ears of other humans with like perfect reliability. And, and so I can look at the relationship between two other humans living out their lives or even between myself and another human. And I still have the same sense of genuine wonder about like, wow, what's happening here? And, and so, so sense of wonder, if it had to be boiled down into, into three words, that's, that's the feeling. I also don't want to over-romanticize the life of a wolf. It's really, really hard. We heard this from John earlier in the episode. You have to be constantly defending your territory from rival packs, risking your life to hunt prey much larger than yourself, and of course deal with the constant threat of humans. Wolves put their life at risk every time they hunt. In the U.S., one of the preferred ungulate species for wolves are bull elk. An adult bull elk can weigh more than 1,000 pounds. The average adult wolf weighs about 90 pounds. Think about how difficult it would be to fight someone who weighs more than 10 times the amount you do without any kind of advanced weaponry. The false notion peddled by the anti-wolf community that wolves are these sort of mindless killing machines couldn't be further from the truth. The amount of energy, effort, injury risk, and fatality rate that goes into hunting bull elk or moose makes it far from a recreational activity. In Isle Royale, John has been studying the relationship between wolf and moose populations for years. Moose are even larger than bull elk in most cases. If wolves were just killing machines, they would in theory keep hunting moose until either the moose are gone or until all the wolves die trying. And that, of course, is not what happens. To what extent do wolves have a top-down influence on moose? We just say top-down because if we think of the different levels in a food chain, wolves are at the top, moose are below, and then below the moose is the vegetation. So how much pressure is there from wolves down on the moose population? And the most important thing that we've learned there is that there is no one single answer to that question. There are multiple, multiple answers to the questions. There have been times in decade-long periods where the influence of wolves on the moose has been very powerful. And moose populations have declined uh, because of what it is that wolves were doing. And then there have been decades long and longer periods of time where wolves haven't had any significant influence at all. The moose population has been influenced by the abundance of their food, the vegetation and climate way more so than anything that wolves would have to do with their abundance. And so the, the other thing that's important about that, that answer, those two kinds of answers, is, is that in most cases, we haven't been able to figure that out until long after the fact. 
we're, we're not very good. When I say we, I don't mean just myself and my immediate colleagues working on Iowa. I'm talking about scientists on the whole. Scientists on the whole are not very good at figuring out about what's happening in an ecosystem as it's going on. It usually takes quite a bit of time afterwards to figure it out. And and, and so so that's kind of you know, been borne out on Isle Royale as well. We figured these things out from hindsight, not from seeing it all kind of like as it unfolds one year at a time. So that, so that's a little bit what we learn, a little bit kind of how it is that scientists frame the question. The One of the implications of, of that scientific understanding has to do with how it is that humans uh, decide they want to relate to wolves. Um, these days, in the last month or so, there's been uh, you know, increased interest by a number of state governments and some uh, members of the hunting community to really ramp up an interest and effort to hunt wolves. And one of the reasons that those people offer for doing so is that wolves are bad for prey. They're bad for hunting opportunities. And, you know, the, the work that we show on Isle Royal is that on the whole, that's not the case. Wolves and their prey coexist just fine. The fine details change over time, but you couldn't even adapt a hunting scheme to match those fine details. The notion that wolves are threats to wild prey populations is one we're going to dispel throughout this series. And we'll dig into some specific data in Idaho when we cover what's happening right now in that state in episode four. Almost all of the field data shows just the opposite, that wolves actually work to strengthen prey species over time by feeding primarily on the weaker diseased. Across Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming combined, since wolves were reintroduced in 1995, the elk population has actually increased by 17% as of 2020. We're going to cover this more in detail in episode three. Finally, I don't want to leave this episode without touching on my favorite personal aspect of wolf behavior, play. If you want to treat yourself to some late night YouTube binging, look up videos of wolves playing in the wild. And it will stir the same joy in your heart when you see dogs play or children or any animal, really. As is the case with all species, the primary role of play seems to be a source of learning and a strong secondary role of building trust and deepening connections with others. Wolves are no different in this regard. What is the value and benefits of, of play for a, any kind of creature, in, in, including wolves? And there are and one of the ways to answer that question is that play can prepare a, a young animal for real life circumstances that come up later. I shouldn't say real life circumstances, but circumstances that aren't playful, but are necessary to get along well in the world. And so, so wolves have to get along with their with their pack mates, for example. And and play is one of the ways of basically practicing those relationships. Uh, and, and practicing probably is is very good word for it. And in that regard, it's really not any different than uh, the role of play for humans. The other thing that and, and that there's there's a way in which that answer is a little bit like Darwinian, kind of like a Darwinian sort of an answer. What's the purpose or benefit of of any kind of, of phenotype or trait or behavior? And so, so that's I, I offered that kind of answer, that kind of Darwinian sort of answer. The other answer is what biologists would, I guess, call more proximate. And the more proximate answer to what is the 
benefit of play is that it's enjoyable. And, and, and quite frankly, that's not any different from how it is that we might speak about the benefits of other kinds of behaviors to, to, at risk of being somewhat crude, but still right spot on. There's a Darwinian answer to what is the benefit of sexual behavior, and, and it's to procreate and the continuance of the species and so forth. And then you can also say, and is it fun? And of course the answer is yes. And those, those things uh, go hand in hand. It turns out to be the case that behaviors that are fun and enjoyable and feel good in an emotional and kind of biochemical sense, those behaviors also often, not always, often are, uh, are of benefit to the, to the fitness of the species, the fitness of the individual organism that's exhibiting those behaviors. So, so yeah, play behavior is fun, and, uh, and, uh, and, it's, and it's, it's an arena for practicing behaviors that, have, that, you know, that contribute to the fitness and well-being of a creature in other kinds of environments. Circling back to Wolf 21, the legendary alpha male from Yellowstone that Rick observed so closely, Playtime with the pups was something Wolf 21 never missed. Play offered an opportunity to groom pups and yearlings and, quite frankly, to find some levity in an otherwise strenuous day-to-day life and grind as an alpha male. For those of us that, that knew 21 and 42 during that, that golden age of Yellowstone history, even when 21 was a, a full-grown alpha male, he still loved to play with his pups. And those are my favorite memories of him, not him winning fights, not him going out in a hunt and, and killing a bison or a, an elk, but him playing with his sons and daughters. And what was especially instructive and intriguing about that was gradually I cut on that there was a point to the play. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples. So the, the two favorite games that Wallace have are chase and wrestle. And so 21 would go over to the pups and he would start a playing session by doing a play bow, kind of like he was bowing down to his pups. Does, does your dog ever do that to you? Yeah, yeah huh? it's kind of like a yoga position, the downward dog. So that's the, the invitation to play. And what he would oftentimes do once he bow down to his pups, he would be the one that would tuck his tail and run off pretending to be afraid. And so all the pups would chase their father. And 21, you could see that he was running at a very slow speed compared to what he was capable of. And he would wait till whichever pup it was caught up with him. And as soon as the pup nipped one of 21's hind legs, 21 would flop over like he was the elk. And that little wolf had just pulled him down. So 21 would be on the ground and the little wolf would be playfully nipping at his father. And then all the other pups would come over and join in on that game. Or in other cases, after doing that play bow, he would start wrestling with one of the pups. So 21 was maybe about 120, 125 pounds, really big for a wolf. And you would see him wrestling with a 15 or 25 pound pup. And he would wait until the little guy just kind of grabbed some fur in one of 21's legs. And when the pup gave the slightest tug, 21 would flop over on his back like he, the heavyweight champion, had just been defeated by this new opponent. And so it was not only fun and games for the pups, I'm, I'm sure they were having the times of their lives, but you've probably figured out that there was another purpose to that. So those two things were starting their education and in hunting and in dealing with rival wolves. 
So the chasing of their father, grabbing a hind leg and pulling it down, is exactly what they would do when they were chasing an elk on a, on a real hunt. And then the most common cause of death for wolves in Yellowstone, and this is the reason how they control their own population level, why we only have an average of about 100 or so, the most common cause of death for wolves, since there's no human hunting or trapping allowed in the park, is wolves fighting with each other over territory. So just like people, wolves fight over territory and stuff, and they kill each other over that stuff. So that's why if you just leave a wolf population alone, they even out, they level out their own numbers at a relatively low density. Anyway, so it's very likely that when 21 sons and daughters grew up, they would be in a situation like 21 oftentimes was himself, where he would have to fight to protect his family. And so having that experience with those pretend fights with their huge father, that gave his pops some confidence that they, they could learn some moves of how a master fighter could teach them how they could win a match. So I, I have a memory of my own father when I was very young. He would have little wrestling matches with me. And I, I even knew it when I was a kid. He would deliberately let me win. And it was not only in a sense a training session, a training session for me, but thinking back, it was a way that he was able to kind of show that he cared for me. He was the type of dad back in the old days that could never actually express that verbally or emotionally, but he, he could do it physically that way. So that's one of the ways that I, I, I found watching 21 so fascinating to me that in some ways he was like my own dad. I asked John if he perceives play as an enjoyable activity for wolves. A question I knew asking he would be careful to answer since as a biologist, he properly treads very lightly around answering anything relating to identifying the true motives or desires of a wild species. His answer though gave me a smile, and I have little doubt that John smiles himself when observing this behavior in the wild. By every account, what we might reasonably call fun or enjoyable it can be just it can be demonstrated in, in the most rigorous sorts of ways and 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 again it's because when you and i as humans report hey this is fun enjoyable might be a slightly better word in this particular case this is enjoyable i like it it is associated with a, a variety of other physical responses that can be measured very objectively and because, because we as humans and wolves um, are both mammals, it turns out that a lot of that stuff, not all of it, but a lot of that stuff is shared in common, especially the biophysiology of, 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 of pleasurable experiences. And so I think that what's easy to say is, and this has to do with specifics versus generals, in general, do wolves exhibit what we would call play? Unquestionably. There's like no doubt about it. Do they find it fun in the sense that if you looked, would you find the same kind of either physical or biochemical responses that we would say, yes, that's an animal enjoying those sorts of things? Absolutely, yes. No question about it in general. When you go to the specific case, like, a, and I'm going to be kind of absurdly specific, when I see that particular behavior by that particular wolf on this particular occasion, is it fun for the wolf? Well, gosh, I mean, I could take a guess and probably say yes or no, 
but but I can't be a hundred percent sure. But you know what? That restriction applies to when we talk about other human beings too. And so 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 I think I think what happens is that when we when we want to make inferences about other animals and in, in, in basically their mental states, it does pay to just understand are we talking about specifics or generals? And and then when we're talking about generals, I, I mean there's there's just overwhelming evidence that that first of all non-human animals have mental states. I mean, for some people, that's a shocker. They do. It's, it's, it's known. My hope with this first episode is to deepen your understanding of wolves, the depth of their cognition and your respect for how they live their lives and the rigor it takes. On one hand, this will make the next three episodes a bit harder to stomach, but it will also leave you with conviction that their conservation is a problem worth solving. And indeed, it is something we can do. You met Rick and John, and you'll meet a few more incredible individuals in the episodes that follow. I want to finish with a couple of my favorite segments with each of them. Well, I I think to look at the big picture, what's fascinating to me is it's been said by many people, and I certainly agree with it, that there are no two species in Earth that have such similar social behavior as wolves and humans. And I think the proof of that is how well dogs, the domesticated version of the wolf, fit into a human family, it, it, it's pretty much a perfect fit. So for anyone like yourself that has a dog, they think of themselves as part of the family. And people that have never seen wolves in their life, that never watched them, when they come to Yellowstone, I explain to them that if, if they've had dogs in their life, they already know a lot about wolf behavior because of their experience with their pets. So in the wild, a wolf pack is essentially the same as a large extended human family. Typically, when a wolf pack starts, it's one male and one female. They have pups. Uh, a year later, they're yearlings. They're partially grown up. They're kind of like human teenagers. They help their parents with a new set of pups. And that goes on year after year. And as the older wolves reach the, the end of their lifespan, here, here in Yellowstone, An average life is only about five years or so, but some of our wolves have gotten to be 10. In in theory, they can live as long as a a pet dog, but the the pack goes on. Yes, yeah, yeah. He was so big and so strong and so indestructible, you know, nothing could really kill him by old age. So yes, there's just so many similarities. And what what I really enjoy doing is, is, as I watch the wolves, learning from them. So 21, just had this um, character where he would, every time that he had to defend his family, he would defeat the rival male. And every time that he won the fight, he would always let the other guy go. He would teach him a lesson and then step away and let him go. So he had this personality that whatever word you want to use to describe that, he he showed his opponent's mercy. Understanding the power of using mercy over fear towards rival packs as a way of protecting your own against attack provides a pretty clear example of just how misunderstood wolves are. True, we have no way of proving that this actually took place. And most likely, even if it did, Wolf 21 understood it extremely differently than how we do or how Rick did observing it. But that doesn't make it any less fascinating. Lastly, John reminded me that when asked why we should protect wolves, One shouldn't need to answer all the questions about the ecosystem benefits or the lack of true threat they pose. 
listen carefully because John's words here are pretty powerful. You know, my value and dignity, and I hope, and your value and dignity doesn't really come from what we do and what we perform for the world. It comes from the fact that we're alive. And, and, and so I hope to be treated in a, in a dignified way, in a respectful way, just because I'm alive. And, and not because of what I do, because I, what I am able to do, I might not always be able to do. And, and there's really no limits to that in, in terms of, I mean, there's no limits to how unable I could become. And I would still hope to be treated with dignity. And so the first question becomes, if that's true for me and true for you, is there any reason that that should be any different for our relationship with non-human animals? And I can't think of a reason why it would be different. So that's one way to answer the question. The other way to answer the question is, well, well I, th- I think might strike some of our listeners as, as uh, more practical in a certain way. If that's the right way to see it. You can, we can all decide if it's more practical after I explain it or not. And it goes like this. And, he, and this is very much about wolves. Not everyone in the United States is on board with, hey, we should be doing a good job conserving wolves. There are a lot of people who hate wolves and would love it for there to be less of them and fewer of them, and, and, uh, and that's what they feel. And so people who do think that wolves should be conserved and treated well, it's a good idea for those people, me included, to think of reasons why, why so that we can explain to people who disagree, why should, why should we be doing good by wolves? And, and one of the common answers that people offer, in fact, it's, it's among the most common answers that people offer, especially in, in kind of uh, political type environments, is to say that wolves are important because of what they do in the ecosystem. This is what they do in the ecosystem, and that's the reason why we should protect them. Well, as matters of principle, and as, as a scientist who has to be open-minded to the evidence, what happens if, it's a big if, but what happens if wolves end up not having that effect on the environment that we just suppose that they might have? What if science were somehow able to prove that they're, they're not so important? Well, then you've taken a, away a reason to be good to them. And, and, and I think some of our listeners might think, oh, yeah, but that's not going to happen in this particular case with wolves because the, the scientific evidence for the importance of wolves is, is really very strong and robust. I would agree. But it's not hard to find very well-qualified scientists, very well-qualified scientists who would say that some scientists exaggerate the role of wolves in the environment and they're not quite as all important as some scientists and some advocates for wolves make them out to be. Well, that's some scientists saying that. Holy smokes, if you're going to kind of like rest on science, you do have to kind of listen to what the scientists are saying. And they're not, to, to me, in some ways, somewhat frustratingly, they're not all on the same page. But also that's common for scientists. So if one realizes, and I realize this is difficult to do. It's, it's difficult to do with our words because we're not, we're not as a society so well practiced at speaking like this. If, if we were able to take people who don't really like wolves and are prone to treating them poorly, if we were able to explain to them why it is 
that they deserve to be treated well simply because they're alive, I think would get further. Because when, you, when you're able to establish that reason, it cannot be taken away. The other thing that I would say is about, about the reason for thinking about it this way is that, is that wolves are a relative, relatively easy case for demonstrating their influence on the environment. But what do you do with, I don't know, the American burying beetle? You know, I, I, I think we'll get along all right without them. And so if their being useful to humans is somehow important to their being around, they're toast. And so, so it's when we, when, we, when we get to the business of defending reasons to treat wolves well, we have to be mindful that those reasons can and probably should be translated to other creatures as well, which, and, and not all creatures are all that useful to humans, but that ain't a reason to be good to them. All right, that's it for episode one. Coming up in episode two, we're going to dissect the effort to exterminate wolves here in the U.S. dating back to the mid-1900s, when we first colonized the West and started converting it to grazing land for cattle. Joining me is Michael Robinson, author of Predatory Bureaucracy, which provides a detailed historical look at this issue. After that, in episode three, we're going to delve into reintroduction efforts. And then episode four, we'll focus on what's happening today and why wolf conservation has turned into yet another ideological political fight with deep division. All right. Until next time.